Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And today we have special guest with us, Travis Rogers, who is one of our team members, also a member at Covenant Reform Baptist Church in Warrington, Virginia, where Sean and I both attend. He's a contributor on our blog and also uh, helping to write our new book on the doctrine of God for children. Um, but Travis, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So we're going to talk about your uh, latest book, uh, The Unaborted Truth. Sean, cue the books. Yep. Unabor- oh, oh, all right. All right. We all got it today. <laughs> Unaborted Truth, Logical Arguments for Life. Um, so Travis, before we dive into talking about the book, can you give us a little background on yourself for the audience? Yeah, sure. So a 20-year Navy veteran, uh, retired as a Navy chief, E7, for those who are unfamiliar with rank structure, uh, retired back in 2020. Uh, I think started getting into writing probably around 2008, and that's when I took over as a, you know, becoming the Protestant lay leader on my second ship. Uh, with us, we didn't have a chaplain, so in the absence of a chaplain, you have certain members who will lead the services, you know, it kind of, I say, yeah, just that leading services. So putting together sermons and worship time got me into the habit of writing and studying. Uh, from there, that really just a friend of mine released a book. I was like, oh, you know what? I've got a lot of stuff already written. I wonder how I could transform this into something. Uh, yeah, lo and behold, four books later, working on five, six, and seven simultaneously, here it is. Uh, as you already said, going to Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in Warrington, and you got my family. We live here in Warrington. Thanks, Travis. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's dive into our discussion. We're, this is actually a very timely discussion, given the Roe v. Wade um, leak, so to speak, um, around the potential decision to... Uh, end Roe v. Wade and leave the choice of abortion up to the state. So I think this is a very timely discussion for your book and for the topic. But for this this specific book and topic in general, what inspired you to write this? I think it's your fourth book, right? A fourth book, yeah. Okay. But what inspired you to specifically talk about abortion? Well, it's no secret there's been a rise in identity politics over the years. Uh, it used to be you didn't know who was what unless you outright asked them. And now you can kind of tell after talking to somebody for no more than five minutes where they stand on any given political topic. Uh, with abortion coming to the forefront of a lot of those topics, there have been a lot of arguments, a lot of discussions. Social media has not helped tone those down at all in any way. So I just it's important to be knowledgeable about things, if you're going to have any discussion, whether it be religion, life, or any other topic at all, you need to be knowledgeable about it. Otherwise, you're going to look like an idiot, you know, and you could potentially hurt the cause. So I'm not trying to argue for life with straw man arguments or argue for life with my own fancies. It's important to know the facts of the matter. And again, it's something as important as life I owe it to everybody that I'm going to try to defend to know what I'm talking about. And I think we all owe that. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Cause it, I think with this topic in general, it's very easy to resort to straw man argumentation. Even if you're on the right side, it's easy to misrepresent the other side, either out of pure emotion or you're just trying to put an argument out there, but being informed is important. It, it speaks to your credibility And um, it's really hard for the other side to attack you if you're being truthful about their side. Yeah, more or less. That's that's kind of the gist of it, of why I decided to go. Well, my other three books are theological in nature. And this one, I wanted to go a different route with things. You know, the here the, the big argument is abortion is nothing more than a religious topic. You know, pro life is nothing more than a religious topic. And even when I was doing college, you know, an English professor of mine, we'd write a commentary and I chose the topic of abortion and showing why it was unethical and illogical. And she said, I can't pick that topic because it's nothing more than an emotional issue and a religious issue. And thankfully, I was able to convince her to give me a shot to do it anyway. 
And that led to a term paper that I got an A on because it's, it's not impossible to do so. Now, I have my worldview and that comes from God. And that's the only reason I find value in life at all or anything for that matter. But I challenge myself to be able to talk talk about this while, for the most part, keeping religion out of it and meeting people where they are. You want to talk about a void of religion? Let's do it. You're still illogical. Yeah, it's it might be in contradiction to other parts of uh, an unbeliever's worldview, but the moment that you have an idea of um, the value of humanity, you're not going to be able to get away from it. Yeah. Um, so speaking of the value of humanity, you begin the book by talking about anthropology. That is the, the study of man, the knowledge of man. Uh, why is understanding who man is key to the discussion? Uh, I mean, the discussion isn't surrounding, are we taking out the trash? Are we putting on a different pair of genes? It's surrounding life, specifically human life. And if human life has no value, then it's not a discussion. It's no different than taking out the trash or putting on a different pair of pants or throwing away that pair of jeans that you spent all this time breaking in, which would actually be more difficult. You know, but if we're talking about actual human life, that human life needs to have some sort of value if we're going to defend it. Otherwise, there's no reason I can't take out both of you or you take me out and nobody should bat an eye because we have no value. But if we truly do have value, then all humans have value. And that's the critical question surrounding this debate. Is the fetus a human life? And if the fetus is a human life, we need to know what constitutes value in man. And that's where I wanted to begin. So, oh, go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to move on to the next question. Do you have anything else you oh, want no, to say? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so... I think when it comes to value, I can find value in this roll of tape. I can find value in it. Why? It's sticky. I, you know, I can use it for painting. Does it actually have value? Inherent. No, it does not. It's, any, it's value that I ascribe to it. Somebody else might, might find no value in it, and it's worthless to them. If I bury it in the ground, it has no value as a roll of tape. There's nothing inherently valuable about it. It's only what we ascribe. But when it comes to humanity and mankind, I'm not the one ascribing value. God ascribes that value. He made us. He has said that we are, have value. And therefore, the only response I have left is to choose to either ignore the value that he has given or I subscribe to that value which is ascribed by God. Those are really the only two options. You know, and anybody who refuses to acknowledge that will have a hard time finding value or defending the sanctity of life because it, it becomes nothing more, if there is no God, it's nothing more than a matter of the value you place on it. But the value you place on life may not be the same value I place on life. And then it goes further. If there's no God, there's no right or wrong. It's only what the majority or the minority feel about certain things. Majority doesn't make up right or wrong. You know, you may follow it. You may not follow it. Again, that comes from God himself and what he has you know, told us. So I subscribe to the value that he has said we have. And I will, I will continually go back to that for what drives my worldview. Again, I'll stand side by side with an atheist, you know, who doesn't believe in God at all, but still wants to stand for life. I'll have a discussion maybe on the side about why I think maybe it's a little inconsistent and urge them to have a better understanding of it. But I'm not going to shun them in that moment. if They want to stand there and tell somebody why abortion is wrong and why life is life. But when you get down to the nitty gritty, that's where our value comes from. And we have to recognize that. Yeah, it's not it's not in man to be able to know. Um, he, he doesn't have the ability to know these things. We're, we're fallible. Our reasoning is flawed. So we can't even check our reasoning because we'd be checking it with our flawed reasoning. But when we have an 
uh, transcendent God who knows all things and is able to communicate them infallibly if he so chooses to, um, then we do have a solid rock, a solid foundation for knowing right and wrong. Um, in the book, you bring out uh, different arguments against abortion that are commonly employed. Um, can you walk through some of these and the problems that you go through um, uh, go through about these arguments? Yeah, sure. So there are. That was my main goal of the book. Again, I did open with anthropology and the Imago Dei, the image of God, and why I believe we have value. But then I go into the next chapter, which is a bunch of subsections, you know, in there. And the first one is keep religion out of it. You know, we discussed that a little bit, you know, and I, that's where I go into why it can still be discussed, you know, through that lens. But there are a lot of arguments and they're all equally as bad. Some, you know, okay, I won't say equally as bad. Some are definitely worse than others, but there is not a single good reason. You know, the, the pro-choice crowd loves to talk about viability, and there's not a single viable argument within the whole lot of them. You know, I, I, there's I, so what I did is I took the most common ones that I could think of that I'd had personally with others, you know, and I used that to build the kind of the structure of the book. The goal is to take the common pro-choice objections or arguments and deconstruct them using nothing but logic and reasoning and then preventing or presenting, you know, sound data, the science behind things, whether it be the science of embryology or statistics that, you know, are published within medical journals, taking that to shed light on what the actual truth is and not just simply what the hollow claim is. So, yeah, we can go through some of those. Uh, it's, uh, you know, for starters, clump of cells. I'm sure we've all heard that one. Yeah, the, the fetus is nothing more than a clump of cells. What are cells? In order for cells to exist, what does there first have to be? Biological life. You have to have biological life for those cells to exist. Now, what types of cells are we talking about? Cancer cells will always be cancer cells. They're never going to all of a sudden start crying on a delivery table. You know, they're going to continue to be cancer. Baby's first hair clippings, toenail clippings, anything will always be just those types of cells. The hair clippings will never start crying from the pages of the baby book. That just won't happen because that is not a human life. But they are indicative of human life and the presence of human life. So even then, the, it's just a clump of cells. What kind of cells? And they've already backed themselves into a corner there because it shows the presence of life. So let's go talking about, yeah, the, the hair clippings will never turn into a baby. If a pregnant woman is left on her own and everything follows the natural function, now we live in a fallen sinful, sinful world with sickness and disease. There are miscarriages and you know other diseases that might impact. But in the normative situation, those cells will continue to replicate and develop and turn into a living, already living, breathing baby. And even then further, what is, a, what's a person? What is a human? We're a collection of chromosomes, right? You know, 23 carried by the sperm, 23 from the egg. That comes together, and now we have a unique genetic code. You know, a unique genetic code of a new person a new human being. So anybody who wants to try to argue just a clump of cells, I am a clump of cells. You're both clumps of cells. The difference is we are clumps of cells that are not only indicative of life, but indicative of human life, because from the moment of conception, we possessed all chromosomes and the entire genetic code of a unique human being. And that's the point they don't want to think about. You know, when you think development, you know, clumps of cells that haven't turned into anything. Well, I'm a bigger clump of cells than any of my children. <laughs> There's a lot more of me to go around, probably more than there should be, especially in the midsection. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's, that doesn't make me more of a human or more value of life and dignity than my children. Any more than it makes them 
more valuable than a fetus that is still in the womb yet to be born and see the light of day. We, from the moment of conception, if we are man, we have value as man, man being in the overarching sense. So zygote, blastocyst, you know, embryo, fetus, those are all just words used to describe the varying physical developments of a human in the human life cycle. You know, it's, but descriptions don't dictate humanity. They simply describe where we are in a stage in that life cycle of physical development within us as humanity. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't give it. It's simply descriptive in nature. Now, it's a fetus is just as much of a human as an infant, is just as much as a toddler, is just as much as a child, as me, as an elderly person. And to say nothing more than a clump of cells is, I mean, scientifically accurate, I guess, (laughs) given the context of what we just went through. But in the connotation of how they're using it is dehumanizing language. It's taking a human being, dehumanizing them, and putting them down to something that is less than human in order to justify what it is they want. Uh, If they're willing to admit, sure, human, you've probably heard, but it's not a person. You know, that's kind of become the latest thing. And that's why organizations like Personhood Alliance exist, where their main goal is not just to convince of humanity, but is to make it where the law recognizes, not grants, recognizes the personhood of the preborn. Because without being recognized as a person, law doesn't apply. It's a horrific reality, but it is where it's at. And that's why I always say the key argument, you know, outside of is the fetus a human life, is what do we have to do in order to have personhood be applied to the preborn? Because once that happens, everything else goes out the window because the Constitution now protects that individual. You know, so, you know, I have right here, the, you know, the preamble of the Constitution, you know, it says, we the people, and then goes on further talking about, you know, the posterity, you know, you know in future generations. But who comprises the posterity? Is the posterity only those who are born? Or is the posterity, you know, counting the preborn as well? I would obviously argue it needs to be the latter. Current interpretation of law and legal standing, you know, goes with the former. The, the preborn are not constituted as persons or posterity. But going back to what we just said, terms do not dictate humanity. You know, they only describe it. So even then, if you want to say it's not a person, that's a legal thing we need to get around. But in every case possible, the law should reflect reality and protections under the law should reflect reality, not simply a personal agenda or a political agenda. So even though I don't think it should be the the main case, it is right now. We need to have the preborn be counted as persons and posterity. So going a step further with that, you know, if persons are protected by law until the moment of death, which is the natural end of things, then doesn't it stand to reason that the preborn, the humanity should be protected from the moment of conception, which is the beginning of life? Again, we went back, clump of cells, but you have that full genetic code of unique human being from the moment of conception If you're protected till the end, you should be protected from the beginning, not an arbitrary line drawn in the sand somewhere after that fact where you're left to fend to yourselves and just, you know, post-apocalyptic world called the the womb. Uh, Equal protection should be given to all from the moment of beginning to end. That's the only consistent application. Uh, Another one I hear, you know, you asked for a few, so I'll go through a few of them here. Another one is unwanted. You know, the child isn't wanted. Oh, it, it's a terrible thing. I don't want to make light of it. I, I hear it. And I, you know, it's easy to say, oh, unwanted. Oh, but it is a terrible situation. There are many in this you know, world who are not wanted. You know, they range from the preborn to the postborn. 
it, it's a sad state. You have orphanages that are filled. You have foster care. You have parents who give up their children. Now, I'm so thankful for those boxes that exist in police departments or fire departments, you know, where the mothers can drop their child off there in these boxes. It's a great thing. They've been used, you know, several times and it's saved a person's life. You know, so I don't want to make light of it. There, it is something we need to think about, you know, as a society, as a culture, what can we do to, we're, we're in a society of inclusion. What can we do to, you know, include these people and make them feel wanted and not unwanted? But whether or not you are wanted, again, does not remove your humanity. It just makes it whether, whether you're wanted or not. That's it. The homeless, one could argue, are not wanted. You know, they're alone. They're begging for money. Some give, some don't. Some, you know, feel bad or some empathize and want to help and do homeless ministries. Others turn, to bl- turn a blind eye or look down upon a, a blight of the community. A whole range of views there. But by and large, the homeless, we could argue, are not wanted. They have nobody, nobody to turn to. And are left to fend for themselves. There have been news articles, you can Google them, where the homeless were killed. You know, I think if I remember correctly, I think it was some teens, uh, but don't quote me on that, that went out killing homeless people. It made headlines. It was a huge deal because they're out killing people. If we apply the same standard of unwanted with the preborn to the postborn, why is it an issue? The homeless aren't wanted. Kill them. Who cares? We care because they are mankind. And we need to care for mankind because God has said that homeless person is just as valuable as anybody else out there. We don't kill the homeless. We don't kill the preborn. We don't kill the defenseless. We don't kill the innocent. That is just the standard. And by and large, that's the accepted standard by both the law and people who fall under the law. Why do we make this big exception for the preborn who we've already determined medically, scientifically, logically, rationally are ind- individual, unique human beings? Why do we make that exception to where if they're not wanted, they're not worthy of life anymore when we don't apply that same standard to any other human life? We hear my body, my choice. You know, okay, your body, your choice. Have fun. Go go live like the world if that's what you're going to do. I, I can't expect the world to live like anything other than the world. I can preach the gospel, preach Christ crucified, but unless God calls you, you're going to live like the world and be lost in the world. I understand that. I'm not telling you what clothing to wear. Dan, take your hat off. You can't wear that. Your body, you wear that hat all you want. But you can't come over, kill my children, and you can't kill your children. And I think we both agree on that. You know, it's my body, my choice only goes so far. I can flail like a madman, but the minute I flail into your face, even if it does need correction, sorry, <laughs> inside joke. Wow. <laughs> the minute I slap into your face is the minute I've gone too far. Is no longer about my body and my choice, but now slapping your face, which is your body, with your choice. So, unless we want to say that that child in the womb is an extension of that mother's body, and that mother now has two hearts, that mother has four kidneys, 20 toes, 20 you know, fingers, 92 cro- you know, chromosomes that make up two distinct genomes. Unless we're willing to say that, which, again, is pretty easy to disprove, then we have to admit there are two bodies at play. There's the mother's body, and there is her her offspring's body, another human being. If there's twins, there's three human beings, and we'll continue to count because math works. So the mother is certainly carrying the fetus. That is true. Nobody can deny that. And some will say, well, it's my body and nobody can force me to do this. That's a war between you and your own mind because your body is going to continue to do it. You know, 
If your mind and your body are at war with one another, that's something there. But your body is not at war with science or medicine. It's going to continue as, as intended. You know, and not to get too graphic here, but just because you're carrying a, a fetus and have a fetus inside of you doesn't make that fetus any more your body than the father at the time of conception. You know, that's just the fact of the matter. Just because you have something in you does not mean that you now own that as a part of your body. You know, we have to recognize there are two bodies. Let's look at the, you know, conjoined twins. Conjoined twins are oftentimes sharing not only parts of a body, if not, a, you know, more or less, depending, you know, what the case is, but organs as well. One half can't say, I'm going to stake claim to those organs kill the other half and say, now these are mine, you know, because they are two unique individual people, in that case, sharing organs. If we recognize the individual humanity of each person in the case of conjoined twins, how much more should we recognize the individual humanity of the mother and her child within? It doesn't make sense to say it's all my body. It's not. There are multiple bodies at place or at play. And we don't treat other people like property. You can say it's mine, but it's not. You sound like a selfish two-year-old who hasn't learned how to share yet. You know, it's not just mine, mine. No, that child is not your property. You know, that child is a unique human life. And it's time to recognize it. We talk about dehumanization, you know, dehumanizing terms. My body, my choice is the pinnacle of dehumanizing another. Because it says that not only are you not an individual, but I recognize there is a body there, but that is now mine as well. I'm a property to be disposed of as I see fit. It's wickedness. It's the height of wickedness. You know, people are not property to be disposed of. So it goes in line with, you know, no uterus, no opinion. You know, those, and I, I like to, say on there, those claiming my body, my choice, no uterus, no opinion, normally are also the same who don't really even understand what a man or a woman is. So, you know, it's, a, you know, it, it, with that, in this age of inclusion, they've just excluded every trans woman out there who doesn't have a uterus. And now they're saying trans women aren't real women worthy of human rights or women's rights arguments. But that's <laughs> a whole other separate area there. You know, that's what happens when you get emotional about things. You stop being consistent. But no uterus, no opinion. Sure, if you want to use that as an argument, welcome to the team. Because when the Supreme Court determined Roe v. Wade, there wasn't a uterus in sight. Not a uterus and a whole lot. So sure, no uterus, no opinion. Let's roll it on back. Hop on board. I'm on that train. You know, there's there's more in the book and they go into far greater detail than that. But I mean, just those are some things that I think are worth thinking about. And even just here halfway joking about things and just casual discussion can show how unstable even the best of their arguments really are. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, you know, going back to the legal discussion. Um, you talk in the book about the Supreme Court decision, and um, I want to just read the section in there that you had from their um, from the resolution to quote, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins when those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy and theology are unable to arrive to any consensus. The judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. Um, so why would this logic be problematic um, from a legal perspective? So in all things where there's a lack of understanding, there should be an abundance of caution. That's that should be the default. Yes. How much more so when we're dealing with human life or even we'll go there route the potential for human life. If they felt unqualified to say whether or not there was human life involved and they so that you know they can't make that decision and any decision that says we're going to definitively say it is not is reckless it is and in doing so they lot. said what it was <laughs> yeah yeah exactly you know and they did come out and they, they outright said 
that they were not qualified to say when life begins, but then made the definitive declaration that the preborn, or as their case would use unborn, are not persons. So they're making a definitive declaration about something, removing equal protection under the law from those individuals, using dehumanizing language for those individuals, while openly admitting they are not qualified to say when life begins. It was reckless, it was irresponsible, and it is past time for that to be reversed. Now, we can have a further argument of where it needs to go from there, but at a minimum, reverse this irresponsible and reckless decision. You know, it's the 14th Amendment. It uses, you know, many words, you know, in their sections, talking about person, talking about citizens. You know, I'll read just you know, one section of it. It says, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So the 14th Amendment differentiates between persons and citizens. You know, citizens have certain rights and privileges afforded. But we see in here where it breaks away from the idea of citizens and says that no person, you know, shall be denied, you know, equal protection. No person in the jurisdiction, which is why they went the route they did. They admitted human life. They don't know when it begins. But the key was removing person and not just removing but outright stating that the preborn are not persons. Because by doing so, now equal protection no longer has to be afforded by the law. Whether you are a citizen or not is irrelevant, because you can have non-U.S. citizens by the 14th Amendment are still rightly protected, you know, under due process, and cannot just have their lives taken from them. You know, that part can't be infringed. They can't be denied that equal protection. So with that, that was intentional to go that route. You know, they're, whether they're biologists or not, they made a declaration about something that deals with human life. And you know, that's, again, going back to what we need to do, we need to reinstate the preborn as persons or make that, that term person apply. And that unravels everything on their side. Now, there's so many other angles we could go with that and other arguments that could be had. But yeah, that is why the Supreme Court decision was so astounding that it has even lasted this long, because it doesn't take anything more than a few minutes right here to show how reckless and irresponsible it really was. And it's interesting, too, because that amendment was used in the justification for abortion becoming legal. But, you know, that for something being used to support abortion, I've already demonstrated how it 100% in and of itself condemns the practice. It's interesting too. Um, you know, I think one of the arguments that they use is that, and you might've mentioned this in your book, you might have not, I don't, I don't recall, but um, they'll go to the point where it talks about being born and say, well, you're not a citizen until you're born. It has it has, doesn't say anything about being pre-born, but I think your discussion of person kind of helps to address it because we would never say that an immigrant who illegally crosses the border in the United States should just be killed because they're, well, they're not a citizen. We don't, why should we uh, care about their welfare? Well, because we believe that they have the same um, due process rights that we do. And I think that would probably come from the 14th Amendment. Now, it's very yeah. inconsistently applied. Um, even if, you know, the Constitution is specifically talking about the natural born citizen um, primarily. And it doesn't address abortion directly either. It's more of an implication. Um, and I guess what with Roe v. you know, where the court seemed to be going now is more leaving it in the hands of the states to decide um, how abortion should be handled legally. Yeah. And at a minimum, it definitely should not be a federal issue. You know, no. it, 
this, I mean, the, it talks about, you know, the state individually. They're the young. Now, that could be you know, whether we're talking big state or states, you know, is an argument there as well. But it should not matter whether one is a citizen because again, you can have privileges, you know, be denied if you are not a citizen. And there are certain things it does. Again, it differentiates between them for a very real reason. But common among both of them is the protection of life. And where is that? Why would it just be the born if we have already determined life exists from conception? They say they're not qualified to make that decision. But science is. And science and medicine has already determined life begins at conception. And so you would if- have to, you know, did the founding fathers believe that they weren't babies before they were born? You'd have to establish that, too, from a historical yeah. point of view, which would be absurd on, on every level. Yeah, you can't be denied life if you're not living. But if we've already determined that you are living in order for even cells to exist, that biological life has to be there. And for human cells to exist, biological human life must be there. And the 14th Amendment says that that life will not be removed. It doesn't say born or unborn. It just says life. It's also, it's a very lame excuse. It's like, oh, well, there's all these people that haven't been able to decide it. So therefore, who could possibly know? You know, it's like, no, you, you can't actually know. You're just making an excuse uh, to justify what you wanted to rule in the first place. That's it. Um, how do you handle, because uh, we didn't talk about this um, this uh, argument used in favor of abortion. How do you handle the rare cases of rape and incest um, to where um, the, the uh, woman might become pregnant and um, therefore she should be justified in having an abortion? All right. So going just like with unwanted, horrific situation, nobody should be unwanted in life. Rape, incest, those are also horrific things, you know, and Regarding rape itself, I'm sure most of us probably know somebody who has been raped in their life. You know, it's a terrible thing and it has lasting consequences. I won't pretend that and I feel for anybody who has gone through that. But method of conception does not determine value of life, does not determine humanity. It only determines method of conception. So... Are there going to be real issues and treatment, therapy, counseling, all of the above, more or less? Yes. You know, and because we're not cookie cutters, you know, somebody may require more than another. And we need to be understanding of that and help people. And there are plenty of resources out there. Uh, Could there be more? Maybe, you know, but there are resources because it's well understood. People need help. You know, especially after going through a traumatic experience. But to say that a child conceived in rape is no longer worthy of life is to punish the child, punish the innocent for the crimes of the guilty, to punish the child for the crime of the father. That doesn't make any sense to go that route. You don't take the innocent and condemn them and punish them because others are guilty. It's not a good look. That's not justice. And, you know, that is injustice at its finest moment, or unfinest, if you want to go there. It's also, if we, I talk about this in the book, it, you know, a Supreme Court case of uh, Coker versus Georgia in 1977 determined that the death penalty for a rapist was off the table. It was too severe for the crime being committed. You know, so now by a Supreme Court decision, a rapist can't be put to death under the death penalty. That penal code won't be there for rapists. But now you have somebody who is innocent and came into this world because of a horrific act, now is being punished, void of any trial, void of any investigation or charges being applied, You know, no actual judge, no jury, nothing more than an executioner coming and telling this person you are not allowed to live anymore and we are going to remove your life from you backed by law even though we're not allowed to do that to your father who actually committed the crime it's to it's backwards you know it's to treat the innocent child worse 
than the actual rapist that the law protects their life. You know, it's, uh, yeah, that's, if we want to talk about that. Now, specifically with rape, we've probably heard, you know, no woman should have to have a daily reminder of rape looking into her child's eyes and seeing her you know seeing the child's father her rapist again a terrible terrible thing i don't want to make light of it but it doesn't have any bearing on whether that child gets to live uh i've seen a multitude of you know things online of people you know talking about how they were conceived in rape you know and stop telling them that they didn't deserve to live That's what you have to do. You have to look at people who are already alive and be willing to tell them you have no inherent value and you are only lucky to be here because you should have been killed. It's wicked. So if I'm going through a hard time, I hope and pray that none of you try to encourage me to go kill somebody as a form of therapy. Because killing somebody, removing innocent life isn't therapeutic. It's not medicine. It doesn't help. It doesn't help the victim move forward. If anything, it sets the victim backwards because it now takes somebody who is a victim and transforms them into an assailant and encourages that they become the assailant. Somebody, you have been a victim of rape because you can't do anything to the, your rapist because the law is protecting them. I encourage you, go and kill your child. You'll feel better in the end. No, no, that it doesn't even sound normal. It it takes the one who has been preyed upon and turns them into the predator. We don't do that. Incest, that you always hear probably rape and incest combined. You know, they go hand in hand with the discussion. You rarely hear just, what about rape or what about incest? What about matters of rape and incest? Incest is again, bad. There are a lot of issues that can come from that. But it is such a small, small number. You know, I have some stats that are right here. You know, first degree incestuous relationships, the child that comes from that will be at a greater degree, you know, a greater risk rather of of major health, you know, complications in that child by upwards of 50%. It really is real. You know, but only 1% of all abortions are due to rape and less than half a percent are due to incest. So we have something that is so incredibly, I'll call it rare. Now to the person who has had it happen to them, it may feel like that's the whole world. And again, we can't discount that, but on the bigger, grander scale, it's so incredibly rare. Why are we now making across the board the, Abortion on demand is legal for everybody, for the 100% of women who want it. When we're talking such low numbers, 1% for rape, less than half a percent for incest, that's now making the exception into the norm. But then if we've already determined that's a human life worthy of protection under law, why are we even entertaining that to begin with? You don't kill the innocent because of the crimes of the father. You don't kill the innocent because they might not be as healthy as others. That's eugenics. For somebody saying kill those who are a product of incest because they're gonna have health complications, congratulations, you openly proclaim eugenics is the way to go. And you should be just completely sick over the thought of that. You know, birth defects, Down syndrome, probably being the biggest one, you know, there's a whole test that happens during pregnancy to determine, you know, if a baby has Down syndrome. That doesn't mean those with Down syndrome are any less deserving of life. You know, there's an issue with the chromosomes. That's all that means. It means that, you know, it it is not, that is not a typical pregnancy. You know, I I don't even want to use the term abnormal because that I can see how that could be offensive as well. You know, so I'll, I'll call it, you know, it is not typical. You know, I think that is a more neutral word to use. Just because you are not typical in the physical sense doesn't make you any less valuable. And I need to say that as loud and often as possible because we all have value. We are all worthy of life, typical or atypical. You know, our physical development doesn't have anything to do with that. 
Now, there's 6,000 children born each year with Down syndrome. And of those numbers, you know, the stats show that 67% of children diagnosed with Down syndrome in the womb are aborted. So we're, so we're talking 6,000 are actually born per year. Imagine how many, you know, I'm not going to do the math, but just think how many are killed every year simply for not being typical in the physical sense. Or because a parent says, well, that's going to be too much effort. Let me kill my child. It, it's, it's sad. It's horrific. And we should all be appalled by where we are as a society that we kill somebody simply for not being typical in the physical sense. It's, there will be unique challenges if you have somebody with any physical development issue or, you know, cognitive, bodily, you know, bodily, any issues. Yeah, there could be challenges involved, but we rise to the challenge. We rise to the occasion. We meet that challenge head on. We don't kill people because of it. So whether it be an additional chromosome like Down syndrome or a missing chromosome like Turner syndrome, or any other genetic variation, we need to embrace these differences among us. That is the true age of inclusion that I wish we could get to, embracing everybody for all of their physical and mental differences instead of saying, no, you deserve to die for not being typical. Or for being too yeah, much of a burden uh, for yeah. one. Um, yeah, what other context we would would we look at that as like, oh, that's noble. That person was looking out for themselves. No, of course not. Um, motherhood and fatherhood is a is a responsibility. You might not have wanted that responsibility, but that doesn't mean you get to shirk that responsibility. Um, yeah, it, it's really it's taking the exception and making it the rule. And I mean. In, I use that exception, I guess, lightly because we're not saying it's a real exception that grants the right to abortion. But people are taking these outlier situations and trying to make that the rule um, and impose that back onto everything else, um, which really shows, I think, the weakness of your argument. Because if you have to resort to outlier situations to back up your argument and make that work, then that means the meat of your argument is worthless. You can't even argue it with regular Normal consequences, you have to go to those rare cases. Okay, then your argument really means nothing. Yeah, and 99% of the people you run into and talk to that bring up rape and incest, if you were to go to them and say, okay, so you're fine with banning all other abortion except for rape and incest, right? Of course they're going to say, well, no, I, I want abortion just in general to be to be um, there. So it's like, well, then why, why are we arguing about this? Um, Although I think in some Republican circles, you you might find, yeah, I'm against all abortion except for rape and incest. Uh, yeah, no, I've definitely, I can think of one person I think is just a rape and incest person. And, but like 90% of the people you, 99% of the yeah. people you run into aren't, that's not, they're using it to, to sort of like make you feel guilty or whatever in the argument. Right. As opposed yeah. to like it being a consistently thought through position, like oh, well, we've got to make an exception for this. Yeah, and with those politicians, some might have the best of intentions, and maybe they're just ignorant, and they never had it broken out in a way where once it maybe if we had a sit down with them, they'd be like, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. Now I've had that in my own personal life, talking with people where they were the rape and incest exception kind of you know crowd. And I've had real people that had never thought about it, and they were no longer counting those as exceptions. It's not unheard of to have somebody just be ignorant of that. You know, they go with the flow. It's what they've always heard, and therefore they jump on board with it. You have others, I think, who use it as political leverage, because if they say ban all abortions, well, now they're not going to have anybody, you know, wanting to vote for them or they'll lose any political power they might have. And I think they take the pro-life position and almost treat it as a weapon to wield in their hands. And I count those people. We, we hear about rhinos, Republican in name only. And I call these people plinos. They're pro-life in name only. If you are truly pro-life, you are going to be out there finding, you know, the all human life needs to be protected. Now, whether that be through abolitionism or incrementalism, that's a whole separate topic there, you know, that we can go into. 
but you at a minimum should not be counting rape and incest as a valid exception because it doesn't make any sense. You know, if you're really pro-life, be pro-life, not just in name only. So moving on to um, a discussion that uh, maybe will be a little bit more controversial within Christian circles. Uh, in the third chapter, you spend some time talking about the issue of theonomy as it relates to abortion. Uh, why is theonomy not the biblical way to approach this? So that's a fairly convoluted topic. And, you know, we'll definitely, we can get into that here. For anybody listening or watching, uh, go to the website, theparticularbaptist.net, and the search feature, type theonomy. You'll see a couple of or a couple of articles pop up where we've hashed that out in greater detail. Uh, for podcast purposes, I'll just say, what is theonomy? You know, theos namas, you know, God's law. And it sounds simple. It sounds refreshing. It sounds like something that we should all want. But we live in a society that has a separation of church and state. That, that's from a societal perspective. From a biblical perspective, we live not under the old covenant under the new covenant and you know the old covenant of works that has been abrogated you know we have you know the moral law that we are to follow and that will have implications you know within humanity that i think are good and just but the idea of following god's law in its totality and bringing these in the problem is really not at an inconsistent level because i think if you were to be inconsistent you can make it sound like anything you want. But when you get to a consistent level, you now have to ultimately punish people for being unbelievers even. And I think it's dangerous as a worldview. You know, it is dangerous to try to transform the culture based on theonomy, uh, especially when we don't live in that society, you know, and as our culture. And you just can't be reinstating mosaic penal code you know, into our society because that mosaic penal code has been abrogated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, you do get, you do hear oftentimes theonomy means just God's law, theonomos, and don't you, don't you like uh, God's law? Well, of course we do, but we recognize that God, there, there are two categories of law, really um, positive and moral when you boil it all down. And God can command laws for a time for a certain group of people, and that's perfectly appropriate. And for other times, that might not be binding um, at all, or even in the same way on the uh, the people being commanded. Um, so, yeah, um, just because something is God's law at one second doesn't mean that it applies uh, to us today uh, in the same way or at all. Just depends. Yeah, if we're going to have our society to follow the biblical structure for law, then we need to resurrect the biblical pattern of judicial consequences as well. And we can't do that. That's not the right thing to do. I'll, I'll say that flat out. Again, those articles that were written shed more light on it, but at least as a, you know, in a nutshell, that's not the right way. And I think it's important to point out, too, with you know, Sean, you make that distinction between positive and moral. Um, this abortion would fall under the moral law. Yes, um, absolutely. You know, the thou shalt not murder. Um, mm -hmm. We just wouldn't apply any of the positive aspects of the law necessarily um, to this topic. But it does mm -hmm. fall under God's law in, in as much as it's moral in the state should enforce it at that level only um, without applying any of the other physical or the positive laws of the old covenant with it. Mm -hmm. And I, I will, I will make a, a little bit of a note here um, because you'll often hear that um, I guess uh, there's uh, for those that aren't theonomists, how do you justify the death penalty or, or such? Do you believe in the death penalty for murder? And that's a little bit of a different issue because that's actually part of the Noahic covenant. It's not part of the Mosaic covenant. Um, so while we view the, the ceremonial and judicial aspects of being abrogated, um, in the Mosaic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant is um, currently in effect and binding on nations today. So uh, the death penalty for murder is um, should be applied by the state. Now, obviously, we know that it, it's not, but it should be. Um, 
and uh, that we would apply that even to uh, abortionists in that regard, saying that they should be. Now, if anybody is not, if the state is um, not doing what it's supposed to be, uh, that just gives us an opportunity to witness to those people that they might be saved. And we'll praise God for every single person that should have been executed by the state and is saved. Um, but we do recognize that, at least in that regard, the um, the state should be doing that. Yeah. We'll just take advantage of it to their uh, to their benefit, hopefully. <laughs> yep. So, kind of continuing the discussion of of the um, doing away of abortion from a moral law perspective, you talk about incrementalism in the book, um, in in versus abolition. Um, and I, your views may have changed on this since the writing of the book. I don't know if they have, but um, why would you see abolition problematic, at least from the book's perspective? So I want to differentiate between abolition and we'll call it abolitionist with a capital A. Mm. I think the abolitionist movement is dangerous. You know, I think mm. best of intentions but is dangerous. And a lot of times it is comprised of, you know, theonomists or post-millennial reconstructionists. You know, I think it's a, it is a dangerous worldview for some of what we already talked about, what you guys added on in there. Uh, I do agree though, that anything short of abolition is not sufficient, you know, but something doesn't have to be sufficient in order for action to be taken. So for the abolitionist, anything that is incremental in nature, they'll say it's baked in and written into the law that it legally allows the regulation of child murder. But if I have something saying you must, you must, you must, all this, and strip away a little bit of its power, that doesn't mean I'm now saying, oh, and but it's perfectly okay that you have the remaining power. It's just saying, good, you've now we've now stripped away what power there a tree, an oak tree. You're not gonna knock it down with one swing of the axe. You have to keep on hitting it over and over and over until it no longer has any support to stand under its own weight, and the whole thing will wind up toppling over. That's kind of how I view incrementalism. It is a far cry from sufficient. You know, as long as you, whether it be the pill or, you know, other medications that are offered, abortive birth control, you know, versus non-abortive. I'm okay with non-abortive birth control, but abortive birth control? Absolutely not. Those are all things that need to be addressed. But right now, you know, abortion on demand, people can go into a clinic. Now, the argument has turned into, well, you can get rid of that and it, it's not going to change anything because they'll just wind up taking the pill. I'm going to tell you that doesn't make any sense. Why on earth would you go into a clinic that can oftentimes be more costly, have higher risks associated with it when you could have just taken a pill at home? You're not going to go through that big hassle. So if you're going to the clinic, it's probably because you're at a point where you would need the clinic in order to make it happen. If that can no longer happen and you can't afford to leave the area to go find another state that allows it, that baby, barring any irreversible acts of the mother, you know, at that point taken into her own hands, that baby will now be born. May only be one life saved, but even if only one life is saved, that is worth it. Why? Because we're not dealing in hypotheticals. We're not dealing in statistics. We're dealing in human life. So any movement that says that you can't save these lives over here because it's wicked for not saving all of them, that is wicked in and of itself. Any movement that says, you know, I thank God that I'm an abolitionist and not like this pro-life man over here, that's wicked. You're just grabbing your own robes. Yeah, you can't say when you see Jesus face to face, yeah, I let them all die, but I did so in righteousness in your name. I don't think that's going to fly. So again, incrementalism is not sufficient by any stretch. It's not the end all be all. But if we can save any lives in the meantime, through whether it be heartbeat bills or wait periods or you know, whatever other you know, plethora of options are out there, far cry from sufficient. But I will be happy to see that 
over a free for all where a, a woman can just go up and say, I want to kill my child. Boom, let it be done. And nothing stands in the way. I'm not going to remove all hurdles from the racetrack to make you have a clean shot to the finish line. If I can put hurdles in the way that might slow you down or deter you from running that race. Yeah, I think that's that's helpful. Yeah, because if if it is an all or nothing approach um, without any room for increment uh, incrementalism at all, then you do have that mindset that, well, it's OK that all these kids can die, continue to die. And I'm not going to do anything at all to, to stop it. Um, it is better, although, like you said, not sufficient to make it more difficult for them to do it in with the ultimate goal of um, of abolishing it in the long run. Um, yeah. Because and that's what you're going to find in a fallen world, anyways. You're not necessarily going to get rid of these ingrained, wicked mindsets overnight. Um, it's going to take time. It's going to take pushing and and lobbying or whatever uh, legal means it is to to get it pushed through. It's not going to be something that happens overnight when people are so adamant and emotional about this issue. But we we do what we can. Yeah, you, I had a, a conversation with somebody just yesterday, actually, and he accused me of not having enough belief or enough faith in God that God can do it. Because we're in a, we live in a society that is not ready to make this happen. You know, we're relying on law. Who pushes law? Society. What does society want? Certainly not this. So <laughs> we're relying on society to push something that society doesn't want all because we know it to be righteous and just. An unrighteous and unjust society doesn't care what is righteous and just. We continue to proclaim the truth. We put we preach the gospel in Christ crucified, and hopefully they will repent of their sins and turn to Christ, because even if a human life is saved in the interim, a human life still needs to be preached to and have the gospel shared with them. Otherwise, they could still be lost for eternity. You know, this is just step one. So it is good. I understand where the abolitionist is coming from in trying to be good and right, you know, upright and not holding on to things that, you know, are not. It is unjust to allow the rest to die, but the rest are already going to die. And we'll just add in the ones that we could save to that lot. That That's not just at all. That's just meeting injustice, with more injustice. So. But, I, you know, I do. I see where they're coming from. But yeah, he accused me of not having enough faith. If only I could believe more that God could do something about this. You know, but on the flip side, what does that make of his view of God? Oh, God can't act until enough people believe? In my worldview, God is sovereign and over all things. I don't understand why he has allowed this to be for the time being, but he has. And I understand that and I accept that that he has allowed the world to world. Now, coming from, you know, two kingdoms theology, as we all do, we understand, you know, the different kingdoms. You know, we're not in the redemptive kingdom. You know, that comes later. And right now the world is going to world. So he has allowed the world to world, you know, in his sovereignty. You know, I, I can't question the why, but I'll do what I can to at least try to correct course here and what actions we can take, you know, as temporary citizens in this kingdom you know it's what we're okay with doing that so yeah you can't say that to be an incrementalist means you don't have enough faith in god it just means that i truly understand god is sovereign and he has called us to be a voice for the voiceless to stand up for those you know who can't defend themselves that's what we're supposed to do and that's what i am doing the person who says that you have to have enough faith to you know for it to happen that's a very weak view of God in the end. That's really more in line with the prosperity gospel, if you come to think of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, this wasn't a question that we we asked, but or we put in the, uh, the question sheet, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, there's something a little bit actually unique about this book as compared to uh, other books on abortion, uh, specifically thinking about one of the appendices here, Travis. What's unique about your book? Uh, you're probably talking about the section titled Real Talk, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So my goal with this book was not just to be something where you can gain knowledge on it. I didn't want it to just be a bunch of Snapple facts thrown your way. You know, it's 
the it begins with the opener of the Imago Day and openly admitting why I find the worldview, you know, the Christian worldview, theistic worldview to be the one that makes more sense, goes into the remainder of deconstructing common pro-choice objections. But what good is knowledge if you don't know how to apply it? And that's where the appendices comes into play, or, you know, the uh, appendix B, I think it is, real talk. It transcripts of actual conversations that I've had through various social media, you know, groups, one-on-ones, you know, messages, taking all those, changing names to keep people anonymous and protected there. But you can see how all of it actually applies in real life, how it has applied, not just a hypothetical discussion, but an actual discussion. So if you're wondering, okay, I have all this knowledge, how might I apply it? Read that appendix and see how I have applied it in, you know, what I was a 10, 11, 12, 13, somewhere in the real conversations, some of them fairly lengthy. You can see how people might come at you and how you might be approached with these pro-choice arguments and then use what you just learned from the book to see how it plays out in real life to deconstruct them and promote life. All right. Uh, with that, uh, where can people uh, find your book in order to purchase it if they're interested? Uh, yeah, so it's sold on Amazon. Uh, there's That's where actually all four of my books are at. You can either search by Travis W. Rogers, that's R-O-G-E-R-S, or you can search Unaborted Truth. You just put Unaborted Truth, you know, into Google, or into Amazon. It'll come up as one of the top results on there. Offered in hardback, paperback, Kindle edition. Yeah. All right. Well, Travis, thank you for discussing your book with us and and for providing some insights on this uh, timely and emotional topic that has uh, reared its ugly head again, unfortunately, with uh, with the SCOTUS issues going on. But thank you for joining us and, and for the discussion today. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. And with that, everyone, have a great weekend, holiday weekend, and Lord willing, we will be back next week. Take care.